0: Hello, I want to welcome you to the Montana DSA podcast series. My name is Frank Krumkowski from the Helena chapter of DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. We have been doing a podcast series all during the 2023 Montana legislative session. We've had uh, 23 previous episodes looking at the issues of the legislature. DSA has uh, a legislative action committee that has been uh, working since uh, last fall when that committee uh, was working on some of the legislative referendums, or one particular one that was uh, very regressive and 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 uh, going against the rights of, of of women and families, and they decided that we should uh, that group, the Legislative Action Committee of the Montana DSA, decided we should go ahead and uh, have a podcast series. So we we went ahead and we've done that. The producers of the show have been Marshall Mayer for the first uh, 20 sessions, and and Bill Entwistle from Helena uh, for the last several sessions as well. So today, uh, in keeping with our DSA focus on on looking at the legislature, we have a guest from the Montana Budget and Policy Center, which is located in Helena. It's been in existence since about 2008. Heather O'Loughlin is the executive director been a friend of mine for for years, and it's one of those uh, agencies and nonprofits that, uh, if you really want to keep up on issues and see who's been doing tremendously deep research onto issues of state revenue, tax policy, uh, policies relating to housing, hunger, childcare, that is a place to go to. The Montana Budget and Policy Center. Our guest today is Rose Bender, who is the director of research. At the Montana Budget and Policy Center, she oversees the research team, at, uh, which is composed of uh, several uh, very knowledgeable and uh, careful researchers. And she, that research team, studies and advances economic policies that equitably invest in communities. Her research focus has been state fiscal policy, advocating, as Montana Budget and Policy Center does, for a fair tax code. That supports a robust state budget so Montana can be made to a better place to live and work for everyone. Well, of course, that has been a challenge uh, all throughout Montana's history. And Rose Bender uh, is the author of one of the articles that you'll find at the Montana Budget and Policy Center on Racism in the History of Montana's Tax Structure. Um, I encourage you to all take a look at that. But I want to welcome Rose to our podcast today. And uh, this will be a dialogue, a conversation, but I want to ask uh, Rose, um, what are the issues that she and Montana Budget and Policy Center have been focusing in on that they want to talk to us about as far as the uh, economic equity and justice issues that they really focus in on. So I want to welcome you, Rose, and uh, we'll let let you start off telling us about what issues you are really focused in on as as crucial at this moment.
1: Great. Um, well, coming out of the session, uh, a lot of big things happened. I guess the pieces I'd I'm I'd be happy to talk about today are are what happened with tax. Uh, you mentioned a piece I authored prior to the session, which was um, the racist roots of Montana's tax code and how our tax code currently asks um, those on the lowest incomes who are disproportionately Black, Indigenous, Indigenous, and people of color to pay uh, more of their income in state and local taxes than, than the wealthy. Um, so the changes, I'll get into this a little more, but the changes made this session were not good. They made that worse as a whole um however there were some some hopeful going into the session we had a huge surplus a lot of that was spent on tax cuts but it also gave us the opportunity to get some money put um in places that needed growth in Montana that needed help um one of those is is provider rates which um I'm happy to talk about further um housing affordable housing we know is a huge issue in Montana that right now and then child care
0: good Good. Those are very uh, crucial and important topics of concern to uh, a lot of people uh, across Montana, as well as DSA members. Great.
1: Um, well, why don't I start out with, with tax? Good. Okay. So the legislature gave away a billion dollars in tax cuts just this biennium. Um, much of that a lot of that was pushed through in the first half of session in the governor's tax cut package which included an ongoing income tax cut um bill and then some temporary tax rebates in addition to a few other things um over 70 percent of the big ongoing tax cut bill senate bill 121 senate bill 121 will go to the wealthiest 20 percent of montanans so that means those um, making over $600,000 a year in Montana will get around $6,000 a year in tax cuts from that bill ongoing. Whereas those up, up to the median income will get probably less than a hundred dollars on average. So maybe enough for a tank of gas, um, to that a big concern of ours is the ongoing regressive tax cut. This makes, as I said, that our tax code, which currently asks the most from those with the let the least, um, it makes that worse. It makes our tax code even more regressive. And then um, the tax rebates. the legislature gave away almost nine hundred million dollars in one or two time tax rebates. These rebates were passed in place of policies that could have helped reform our property tax system to be more sustainable in the long run. And some of that property tax system is the reason our housing is so affordable for some folks. So our property tax system also currently asks those with the lease to pay the most is, as property taxes aren't tied to income, um, there is no check or balance in our system to make sure folks aren't paying too much in their income and property taxes. And those who are paying rent pay property taxes through their rent. Um, So the property tax rebates passed, first of all, don't go to renters. So that makes them more available to folks with more income. And then they're not ongoing. There was a There was a proposal in the legislature that came with bipartisan support out of the legislative revenue interim committee, which was a property tax circuit breaker, a property tax credit Mm -hmm. that essentially um, gets hit or folks are eligible for a credit when their property taxes exceed a certain percentage of their income, um, which is a great policy to be a check and balance on a property tax system. Um, If this bill would have passed it would have dropped the effective property tax rate for the lowest 10% of incomes in Montana from in half. It would have cut it from almost 9% to less than 5 So it's so targeted that it would have made a huge difference in the sustainability of our property tax system going forward. And it was so effective that it was not nearly as expensive as those property tax rebates. Those property tax rebates could have paid for 12 years of this tax credit. But instead, we get two time rebates, but they're pretty small and for pretty much homeowners, um, as opposed to a credit that could help improve our property tax system in the long run. So that's disappointing. Um, Yes,
0: that's very disappointing. I just wanted to step in and just
1: say, as I've been
0: following uh, the Montana Budget Policy Center's weekly updates on this, those uh, tax issues and the rebates and so forth towards the richest, ignoring the needs of the low and moderate income folks, in fact, uh, making it worse for them uh, in, in many ways, has been, uh, of course, a concern of DSA. Uh, DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, um, are interested in getting rid of this uh, wealth inequality and, and, the, and the extremes of, of, of wealth and poverty in in, uh, in Montana as well as across the country. And those bills that you've just highlighted which didn't pass and other ones which did pass uh, seem to uh, come from a mindset that uh, indicates that the low and moderate income folks uh, really uh, mean nothing to these uh, Republican legislators.
1: Yeah, it is It is unfortunate to see the tax policy pass that did pass. And there's a similar story there with the income tax rebates too. I mean, those are... Uh, Non-refundable, so basically not available to folks who, not fully available to folks who have low wages, and then also they're one-time, and at the same time as passing a very, very expensive income tax rebate one time, uh, they, we didn't pass our refundable child tax credit. That could have helped families. Again, I think that rebate could have paid for i think 14 years of that ch- child tax credit which helped which has been proven with the experience looking at the experience from the federal child tax credit has been proven to be spent on things like food clothing just like basic daily expenses for families who need that to help to help their children um so that was something that was sort of sad in the tax, the tax. World as well. I will say a piece of that Senate Bill 121, the big income tax cut, um, did include a small increase to our earned income tax credit, which is a great policy. It's a a tax credit that's available to to workers with low wages. And um, but the problem with that bill was that only six percent of the total cost of Senate Bill 121 went to a, the increase to the earned income tax credit, whereas the rest of it went to this tax. Cut that benefit the wealthy. So, even even considering that, um, the numbers are still the same: six thousand dollars for the top one percent, less than hundred for anybody under the median. Um, so, definitely a not a fair bill overall. So, let
0: me ask you because you've been following us so closely, um, when and I've I've watched you know a lot of the uh, Senate and House hearings on on these bills, and I've not been impressed by. Um, the research and background that some of the legislators have put forth when they've uh, uh, voted mm-hmm. down these bills or, or con- testified against them, is your perception that the legislators who are passing these regressive tax policies uh, favoring the rich simply are out of touch with the um, the needs and the suffering of lower-income Montanans? or that is it that they're in their uh, worldview uh, those things are just not important or is it some combination of of uh, things
1: mm-hmm. that
0: they do because if we're going to dig our way out of this we have to figure out um, how to replace those legislators but also to find out what, what it was that led people to uh, adopt such regressive policies.
1: Yeah, I think there is a lack of connection between many legislators and what is actually happening to Montanans on the ground. And um, I will say when when someone, a real person who is impacted these by these policies is able to get to a committee hearing and talk about their experiences and what they would spend that money from and how the earned income tax credit has helped them, um, how child an increase in the state investment in childcare for low-income families would help them, um, I I see legislators sometimes listening to that and sometimes that changing their mind, right? Like they're like, oh, here's a person who is affected by these policies. So yeah, I think there is a real disconnection between what's happening to real Montanans and the, how the folks who are in our legislature today understand that.
0: I, I know because back when I was working for state government uh, 20 years ago, I was uh, head of the child care program and so uh, I know something about the the importance of child care subsidies for example Uh, and I recall uh, finding out that there was enough money in these subsidies for only 10 percent of the mothers and fathers who were eligible for those programs so I mean there's a there's an injustice right there but That situation seems to be continuing in a variety of ways that, even though there are some minuscule improvements, um, they're still not touching the depth of of the issues in housing and childcare and in healthcare that are affecting uh, most Montanans. Most Montanans are not in that upper bracket that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, completely. Speaking of childcare, yeah, we worked hard this session to help pass a bill, House Bill 648, um, which we're now waiting on the governor to sign. This bill is so important um, and would increase eligibility for those folks who are on our Best Beginnings Childcare Scholarship Program. So this is um, working families with low incomes um, who who need support with childcare to get back to work. I mean, many women are still not back to full-time work, Mm post-pandemic, and this is a bill that would help many of those families afford to be able to work, as ridiculous as that sounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, This bill caps co-pays for folks at 9% of income and then um, increases the eligibility for for folks to 185% of the federal poverty level. So you're looking at at pretty low-income families. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it would serve an additional 723 children, um, which would help would help many families be able to move into the workforce and as we all know we're having trouble finding folks to be in our workforce right now, especially in some of those lower wage jobs. Um, so our ask is for for the governor to please sign House Bill 648 and make an investment in childcare for families who, who are trying to work.
0: So you're, do you imagine, has he given some clues as to whether he's going to sign that bill.
1: Um. It's a big question mark right now, I think. Uh, so pressure is good, pressure is good. Calls into the governor's office to sign House Bill 648 are, would be a good thing right now.
0: So what are some of the other uh, bills uh, and issues such as the housing one that you mentioned that you could tell us a little bit more about, about what happened, what didn't happen, and what maybe what should have happened in, in your mind?
1: Sure. Um, I can move into provider rates. So provider rates determine just a little background. The provider rates determine the reimbursement rate for Medicaid providers and and an adequate reimbursement rate is necessary to ensure care is available for those who need it. I think some of um, low provider rates sometimes result in wages being too low for it to be sustainable for folks to be able to, to take these jobs and also afford childcare or what have you. Um, before the legislature convened, the state conducted a provider rate study over the interim. So this rate uh, this rate study focused on the significant impact of COVID-19 on service delivery, the cost to sustain high-quality services, and how to address workforce shortages. And this study determined the rate increase required to maintain high-quality services. Um, so much of the legislature was spent um, fighting to get these provider rates passed. Um, Representative Cafaro had a bill that she just worked on throughout the entire session. Um, in the end, the legislature did make a significant investment in provider rates. And today we only have a $9 million gap between what has been funded and the study's recommendations, which is a serious improvement over where we were going into the session. Um, these provider rates will seriously help Montana address workforce challenges and the industry, and providing high quality services. So we're we're happy to see the huge investment that was made. We want to see this going forward and even increased because it, as I said, like there's a nine million dollar gap between what that study recommended and what and what we got. Mm-hmm.
0: And as far as affordable uh, housing issues uh, and renters uh, relief or uh, changing rules that would affect renters. Uh, what's your perspective on some of the things that happened in the legislature and some things that should have happened in the legislature.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Affordable housing was another issue that they were fighting on tooth and nail until the last second of Signy die or when the legislature ended. Um, in the end, there was a big housing investment bill passed. There are um, there's some work that needs to be done moving forward to make sure that the money that was put into that bill will be actually going to um, housing for families who cannot find or afford housing. Um, so I'll get into the details a little bit. There was $100 million for local government infrastructure, water and sewer projects that are tied to housing development. Um there is language requiring some density and the governor's economic development office is going to need to establish a policy for long-term sustainability. Um, But this will provide an opportunity for stakeholders interested in affordable housing to keep close watch and just make sure, like I said, this money is going to projects that actually help families who are having trouble finding and affording housing. And then there was also an additional $50 million put into some coal trust money um, that is available for projects, for housing projects. Um, unfortunately, um, the interest rate requirement for the, that money was increased a bit. And so the result is that for projects with very low income families, the, those projects may not pencil out, but there are some other types of projects that that money will likely pencil out for. Um, and again, I just encourage stakeholders interested in affordability, affordable housing, to follow this throughout the interim. See how, see what kind of projects are getting funded, what impact this has on our affordable housing issue in Montana, and if it is not making the impact we need, we need to look at this issue. Likely, we're going to be needing to look at this issue again in the 2025 session.
0: I would think that would be the case because um, even though there. Uh, Worse some dollars put into uh, housing. Um, from what I've read in the Montana Free Press, as well as uh, what I've learned in, in dealing and in being part of a project here in Helena called Moving the Needle on Housing. It's a local uh, project to deal with the housing crisis, actually housing emergency in the Helena area, as one of our uh, members of our groups stressed. Um, there are so many uh, people on waiting lists for subsidized housing, uh, and people uh, who uh, who are living in places where no human being should actually live, because they're you know mold infested or or uh, uh, simply uh, situations where uh, people, like especially women, are living with abusers because they have nowhere else to go. Uh, they can go to the Friendship Center, which is the domestic violence shelter here in Helena, or the Y uh, WCA, but they're always full, and the waiting lists have hundreds and hundreds of names of people uh, waiting for uh, for housing that might become available if they were lucky enough to uh, get on that waiting list. Waiting list and get a Section Eight uh, housing voucher, for example. So the housing issue is just just a crucial one and one other thing i'd mention is that here in the helen area most recent figures are that somewhere between 380 and 400 students in the school system are essentially homeless they do not go home to to a home that would be a normal family home they're 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 either out on the streets or they're couch surfing or they're finding someplace on a day-to-day basis to go. Uh, And so this housing and affordable housing issue is just a tremendous crisis here in Helena. And we're not the worst place in Montana. We had Elizabeth Marum from Bozeman, who I think you might know, um, as one of our podcast uh, guests uh, about a month ago. And she was explaining that, you know, the situation in Bozeman is probably the worst in all the state because of the tremendous uh, increases in rents and increases in, in the average uh, cost of a home. In Helena, it's about $430,000 if, if you're lucky enough to try to buy a home. But in Bozeman, it's over $800,000. $800, That's out of this world, crazy, and it's a crisis. So that housing thing is, is uh, something, as you say, to really watch very carefully and and to see what kinds of projects are being funded with that money. I know that uh, Representative uh, Kim Kim Abbott was one of the people who helped to put that bill forth. Uh, I think that's the bill that, that finally got passed in some form, if, if I'm correct. But she had proposed and was very surprised that she got some Republican uh, co-sponsorship and support for that bill. But uh, that's a good sign. Uh, it's not as if we have to always have the worst outcomes. <laughs> of a a legislative effort, Um, what are some of the other bills and issues that uh, Montana Budget and Policy Center has been looking at and would like us to uh, keep our eyes on so that we can be part of the solution even during the interim between the legislative sessions?
1: Um, One bill we were really happy to see signed, I believe, just yesterday or the day before, um, is House Bill 317, which was the Montana the MICWA, Montana Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, so this is a bill that ensures protections in Montana law for Indian children in the child welfare system, um, keeping indigenous communities, families, and children together in child care proceedings. So um, this bill was signed. It is um, it there were some changes made. Again, it was one they were fighting on through the last minute. Um, and it will expire on, in 2025. So this is likely an issue, again, that we'll probably be looking at moving forward. But but we are very ha- happy to see this bill signed. And there was a huge number of folks coming in in support of this bill throughout the session, an incredible amount of work done. And um, Representative Wendy Boyd did a fantastic job sponsoring this bill. and And we're just thankful for all of that work.
0: And yes, very important, the ICWA, Indian Child Welfare Act of Montana. Um, One of the things that I also want to ask you about is to have you tell a little bit more about your December article called The Racist Roots of Montana Tax Policy, Tax Structure. Um, That's an article that everyone should read. And um, I posted it up on Facebook uh, when I I came across it, and uh, seen people being shocked by what they saw there. I wasn't shocked by racism in Montana. I mean, I have never lived any place where racism has not been rampant. And when I moved from South Bend, Indiana to Montana back 51 years ago, uh, I could immediately see that Native Americans were uh, not only second-class citizens, but discriminated against in very, very severe ways. Uh, and, as you mentioned, uh, Indian Child Welfare Act is is an attempt to get people to uh, get the Department of uh, Public Health and Human Services to assure that if children are put into foster care for valid reasons, and if they're Native American, that they are uh, having they have their family and tribal roots uh, supported and recognized. I know that, uh, but 7% of the Montana population, more or less, uh, in among youth is Native American, but 25 to 35% of the kids in foster care are Native American. And that's not right. That's, that's really wrong.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, that report, The Racist Roots of Montana's Tax System, I put together before the session and... Um, What I did there was dug, so if you look at modeling, like I said, of our state and local tax system, you find that those on the lowest incomes who are disproportionately people of color pay 20% more of every dollar in state and local taxes than the wealthy. So um, I looked, I dug into, this fuels the racial wealth gap. So this fuels the fact that Folks who are already at the top are more able to build wealth than folks that are not. Um, and those folks at the top are disproportionately white. Um, for this report, I dug into some, some historical taxes um, experiences in the state um, and looked at um modeling to see who's paying them, what the history is of those taxes, and and how that connects to like what the what the result by race is of these policies. Um, this is something that a lot of states and even groups at the national level are looking into right now because um, we haven't always been able to have tax data by race to look at who is actually who is actually paying our taxes. And um, Dorothy Brown wrote a book um, not too long ago um, that dug into this issue at the federal level. Um, and her, it's a fantastic book. And her book, um, she became interested in this because she was filing her, her parents' taxes. And she was saying, well, why, why are they paying such a higher rate compared to me? And started digging into these, um, these policies, um, things like married filing separately, how that works out by race, who are the people who are likely to benefit from different tax pilot policies and who are not. Um, I think, I I encourage you all to to look at this report and look at the policies that I cover. But I think as a whole, what's important is that currently and historically, folks of color in Montana are paying a higher state local tax tax rate than white folks. And and that is only getting worse. What passed in the legislature overwhelmingly, if you look at it at a model level, is tax benefits that on average benefit the white and wealthy, more than everybody else, and um yeah, that that affects most of us. I mean, the white and wealthy are not are not everybody. It's the top one percent, the top twenty percent maybe, but but certainly as a whole, it's it's we're going in the wrong direction.
0: Well, members of DSA, Democratic Socialists of America have been cued into those issues for years and years, um, just for the sake of history uh, lesson here. Uh, Michael Harrington who wrote the book *The Other America* back in the '60s, and and uh, on the basis of that, Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson, started the War on Poverty, which ended pretty quick <laughs> because all the money went into the Vietnam War and it was sidetracked. But uh, it its remnants of that still uh, exist in terms of the Head Start program. But um, in Montana. Um, there's a thing called the Poor People's Campaign, the Montana Poor People's Campaign. I think you're probably familiar with it, but it's uh, reports indicate, as you mentioned, that it's hard to get information or that information on poverty within the Native American community is is sort of known, but it's also uh, not systematically tracked by the federal government. Is that, the, is that accurate or... Is that a misstatement or of, of what is happening? But you know, people have to know that Native Americans in Montana are living for the most part in tremendous poverty, but I'm not sure people are aware of, of these tremendous discrepancies. I always say Montana is the last best place, but if you study a little bit Montana history, you're kind of wondering what the heck that means.
1: Yeah, I guess I'm not I'm not certain about about the data you're talking about. Um, But um, I will say that, yeah, I mean, we, we can't deny the fact that we live in a country with a long history of um, discrimination, you know, (laughs) taking land, um, slavery, all these things um, have impacted, I mean, have essentially resulted in the racial wealth gap. I mean, when folks Wealth is transferred from generation to generation. So if folks start out a long time ago in a situation where they have a lot of wealth, that continues to grow over time generally. Um, And it's true the other way as well. And um, that is why we have a responsibility as a state, at the state level and at the federal level to pass policies That help mitigate some of those issues Um, and why it's so disheartening to see tax policy session and session again, continue to get worse and to make these things worse as opposed to the opposite. And frankly, it would be pretty easy to flip this around to say the lowest in 10% of Montanans are getting X number of dollars more from these bills and they're actually helping to not even make our tax code progressive, but just even it out across the board. That would be a huge improvement.
0: Is it your perception that Montana legislators who are failing to uh, address these tax policy inequities are ignorant um, of, of the data you're referencing about the discrepancies and about the injustices? Um and if they are ignorant, I mean ignorance is curable, I think, but it's not necessarily curable overnight. And I i know I've dealt with legislators over the years, and I've really, you know, had some very fortunate uh legislators representing me, Mary Cafaro, Mary Dunwell, Janet Ellis, but I've had some other people from the Helena area who I'm in dialogue with even during this past session who um Seem to be impervious to letting it sink in that these are in unjust, unjust uh, uh, practices, unjust policies, and that they are uh, they need to be changed as a matter of basic uh, justice and, and equity. Is it is it that these legislators who are pushing these policies that continue or or or, or uh, Worsen the inequities? Is it that they don't understand or don't know? Uh, what, what is their problem, would you say?
1: Well, um, I would say probably a little from column A, a little from column B. I mean, if we're talking about the tax policies that were passed, for example, let's talk about the, the governor's tax package that was passed very quickly at the beginning of session. Um, we, Montana Budget and Policy Center and other groups, I mean, I testified, we testified against those bills in at least four committees. Four times we were passing out information showing our current tax system and like what these bills would do to it, talking about that effect. Um, so I wouldn't say they don't have access to that information. I would say they are presented on it during each of the hearings. They they get that information there. Um, so I wouldn't say they don't have the information, no. Um, I think there are some, some myths that are, um, like the bootstrap mentality that some of these folks buy into, right? Like, um, these folks that have lower incomes, well, they need to just, just bootstrap up and figure it out and fix it themselves. But I think within that belief is a real ignorance on what it actually, what the experience of, of someone who has grown up in a situation different from yours is like, and what sort of things would be, what sort of things our society should be investing in to help folks do exactly that. And
0: DSA members since 1982, which is when DSA was founded, have been trying to work with um, legislative candidates across the country Uh, to uh, help change those policies. But it's been a very uh, long, tough struggle. And it isn't as if (laughs) people haven't been working on this only since 1982. You have Martin Luther King uh, Jr., who was a democratic socialist, uh, as most people now realize when they finally start doing a little study. But he was uh, killed at the time when he... uh... He was pushing for a uh, tremendous uh, poor people's campaign. He, his was the original poor people's campaign back in 1968, and he was in Memphis, Tennessee, working with the garbage workers there who were uh, horribly mistreated, uh, and there's some tragic uh, deaths occurring among garbage workers there. But uh, I'm thinking that these struggles have been going on for a long, long time, um, and I mean, I guess I'd be talking about thousands of years. Uh, back in B.C., you had Plato, the philosopher in, in Athens, writing a book called The Republic. And that book asked the question, what would it take to achieve a just society? And it's an interesting book um, that not that many people read. But the reason I say it's this struggle has been going on a long time is that at the heart of Plato's Republic, there's a section of the dialogue, and it's a dialogue. It's not a, it's not an essay. It's a dialogue between Socrates and others. And someone asks Socrates, "Well, what do we have to do, to get it? Get leaders that are full of justice and and will lead us to justice?" And he ironically answered, "Well, we're going to have to tell a big lie." And that big lie he said was that all Men are brothers. We're not, and we should treat all of us as brothers and sisters. That's the reality of what it would take. And when you have people, you know, disregarding the um, the sufferings of other people and saying they're not just important, or you know, they should pull themselves up by their bootstraps, those those uh, lazy bums. Uh, they are part of the group that. Plato and Socrates were talking about years and years ago. I'm talking about 2000 years ago. And of course the uh, Hebrew and Jewish prophets and teachings of Jesus all focused in on turning our attention to the least of the brethren, the most vulnerable, the little ones. And uh, boy, that seems like that has not yet come to fruition here in Montana for sure. Let me ask you a couple more questions about the work of the Montana Budget and Policy Center I know you don't uh, only work during the legislative sessions, but your team of researchers and advocates are working with partners on various kinds of projects. But uh, tell me a little bit more about how the Montana Budget and Policy Center um, chooses the projects that it decides to research and the allies that it works with. And what are some of the most important kind of things that you'll be working on um, as far as continuing research Maybe it'll be the same things we've just talked about, but what is the Montana Budget and Policy Center's, you know, st- strategic plan for being part of the solution to all these inequities that that, we, that you and I have been mentioning?
1: Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, we do, um, We have a we have a theory of change we put together somewhat recently and updated and and it is centered on on building power so. um, We are not a grassroots organizing organization, but our work involves working with other grassroots organizing organizations, so we work very closely with groups like Montana women vote. um, To essentially. We're trying to get research out and information out to folks to make it more accessible so they can participate in the public process and make and make sustainable change. Um, And even just know what's going on in the legislature. I think there's a real lack of of that of of information getting where it needs to go there, too. Um, Thanks for working on this interim. Well, there's a long list, and that's a good question. Um, Childcare certainly housing certainly Um, we're always working on. Track. I mean tracking the budget and tax and essentially um, we also have a lot of state tribal work they do, including um, tracking the state tribal relations committee. um, Working on investments in Indian country, Um, all of this work, I mean our mission is to help advance policies. Um, and do research that promote opportunity for all Montanans and and in particular, lower to moderate income Montanans. Um, So it's a pretty broad, broad bucket of items. Um, But yeah, those are the things we're we're kind of watching. In
0: terms of uh, women's issues uh, that Montana women vote, uh, especially focuses in on and also Montana now. National Organization for Women, uh, based in uh, Bozeman, with uh, Jan Strout, I believe you know as well. Uh, they're constantly working on on trying to get people involved in, in the work of uh, paying attention to the, not only the legislature, but also the daily injustices in housing and in um, reproductive rights and so forth. Um, you're not a grassroots organization organizing organization, but your research is really essential because um, you know, I guess I would say I'm an inveterate researcher, but um, I don't have the time and the background to do the kind of in-depth research that the Montana Budget and Policy Center does on all of the issues that that you've just that you have papers on and reports on at your website which is at montanabudget.org uh, if anyone wants to, to go to that website, and they should, um, but um, I've heard people say that we ought to practice at and and some people say you can't be serious. Uh, this is one of the organizations that is part of the oppress- oppressors class, but at and for me is awareness, truths, and transformations. Widen our awareness, of the issues that affect us and our brothers and sisters, especially the most vulnerable, get the most reliable version of truth that you can find. And then don't sit on your behind, but move towards transformation. That's the T part, T for transformation. And, um, you know, I'm almost 79. So I'm kind of thinking that, a lot, of these, a lot of these transformations are not gonna occur before I pass over the horizon myself. But I'm very interested in the work of groups like Forward Montana, Montana Budget and Policy Center. Not that you don't have people who are a little bit older working within your organizations, but you're mostly younger people, especially with Montana uh, uh, Women Vote and Forward Montana. But um, what do you think are the challenges to um, getting people more and more involved in, for example, tracking the legislature. Because I can think that um, a lot of people are just busy, 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 and they can't uh, find the time to uh, watch a Senate hearing on Senate Bill 648 or something like that, uh, or simply uh, are too wrapped up in the daily struggles to get involved. But that's not the case with a lot of people um, who do have energy and time but they're not involved with with groups like montana women vote or or with dsa or with some of the i mean many action organizations like northern plains resource council and we've had each of those organizations as part of our dialogue in this podcast series but um what are your perceptions of what it would take to get to the next uh, level of of activity and so that we can go from the A, T, and T to the T part, the transformations. Um, how many, is there a threshold of, of people uh, that you know of that we have to reach so that we can uh, you know, change these policies? Because we can't keep saying legislature after a legislature, legislative session after a session, that yeah, this was a bad one. Uh, this was a nightmare. Um, yeah, it got worse. Um, um, you know, things do get worse, but I can recall just one example of something I want to ask you too about is about the DPHHS budget. Um, back in 1988, which is oh, just a little while ago, I was part of a group that studied the caseloads in the protective services system and foster care system. And we calculated that if Montana were to meet the caseload standards of the of the Child Welfare uh, League of America, Montana would need to hire 130 additional FTEs, full-time workers, to be able to come close to meeting the Child Welfare League of, uh, League of America standards for social workers working with children in care. Well, back in 89 then, um, I met uh, Stan Stevens, who was the new governor, talked to him about this report, and, and reported to him that uh, what I just told you here, and said that in other, in other uh, states, eleven other states and and lo- localities where situations like the ones we discovered had happened, the courts had intervened and take had uh, put in conservators, uh, overseers to um, take over those. Uh, family services and protective services organizations and were ordered to hire additional workers. Well, Stan Stevens, who was a former radio broadcaster, who uh, right-wing radio broadcaster, who became governor back in 89, I guess, listened to us and he said, you know, I get sued every day. Um, it's, It's as if it didn't sink in, that you can't protect children in a foster care or protective services system if the best research would show that you need 130 additional social workers to do the work and have reasonable caseloads. Well, so as a result of that uh, report that we gave to the (laughs) 1989 legislature, there were 10 new social workers put in the budget. But two years later, we calculated that um, it was an illusion because there was a thing called and I'm not sure what it is now a thing called vacancy savings it's a policy that says it was is legislatively mandated that if you're going to um, have the budget we've assigned to you and hire new workers you have to maintain a certain level of vacant positions so even though you had 10 in 1989, you had 10 more workers. In 1991, just a couple of years later, it was determined that because of vacancy savings, although you had 10 more uh, workers on the books, there were two full-time FTEs less who actually worked. So the situation was totally illusory. And I'm just wondering, you know, with, with things like the provider rate, um, things that you mentioned for, rates for providers and for the state hospital workers and things like that. Um, are those issues that are solvable um, given the the current attitudes in the Montana legislature on funding essentials that protect our children and our families?
1: It's a good question. Um, I think, are they solvable? Well, I think anything's. I don't know. We make progress on these things over long-term periods, and I think um, sometimes then we take step, step back, steps back. And I think um, too, when we're thinking about like child protective service caseloads, which is very important and certainly needs to see the money they need to see to do that work. I also just think we need to think more big picture about um, how how we're spending money as a whole. Like, why are those kids in foster care. Well, I would guess a lot of them are probably there because of housing issues. Well, you know why they can't have sustainable housing because we have an affordable housing crisis that we're not adequately investing in fixing in the state at this time. Um, like I said, I'd like to see I'd like to see progress over the interim in that. but, um All of these things are, Connected. How we spend our state resources and support Montana families results in either more children entering the these, also the juvenile justice system is connected, right? Like if we can invest in the front end and help folks afford food, housing, the things they need to keep their family healthy and safe, then we're not going to be needing to spend that money on the justice side or in the child protective services side.
0: Well, Rose, I know that uh, you have other things to work on today, and have graciously given us uh, your time to share your your review of the legislature and of your and your concerns and your views about uh, what next steps need to be taken. Um, I need to end because we have to end just shortly, but I'll give you a chance to uh, just say one more thing about. What you want to say about the uh, the issues and concerns of the Montana Budgets and Policy Center, and how people uh, might uh, take advantage of the fact that uh, you exist with your team of researchers and people committed to social and economic justice? Well, oh, thank you.
1: Yeah. Um... Well, we are, you can go to our website and sign up for our newsletters. We send them out um, frequently during the legislative session, and we'll be sending some out um, post-legislative session when we get some products together summarizing. Um, We'll be putting together three reports that will be coming out soon. One, um, covering the budget, what's in, what was in, what's out, what's the takeaways from the budget and the state investments this session. Um, Two, state, tribal, how, how has funding for state trouble investments changed? What bills that affect Indian country were passed, which were not passed? Um, What's the status at the end of the session? And then the same with tax, Um, big picture, what what are the takeaways with tax this session? So keep your eye out for those, sign up for our newsletter. We're also on social media um, at Montana budget. Um, You can find us there and um, yeah, feel free to reach out as well. You can find our contact information on our website.
0: Well, great. Thank you very much, Rose. Uh, I can only say that I highly recommend the Montana Budget and Policy Center here in Helena as a source of uh, continued inspiration and research. Um, Some people say they're busy, 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 but uh, one of the things I like about the Montana Budget Policy Center is that they study, study, study. Mm -hmm. and They're always trying to uh, get down to the roots of what's been going on and then share it with the rest of us. So I want to thank you and uh, Heather O'Loughlin and all your other uh, colleagues there at the uh, Montana Budget and Policy Center. Thank you for your time being with us in the Montana DSA podcast here on May 25th. And I look forward to uh, working with you on projects and and, uh, research uh, results in the future. So thank you very, very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you.